going to continue in the Gospel of John, just as we started a few weeks ago. So you can turn into your Bibles to John chapter 1. I apologize, you can already hear the straining in my voice, and so I'll try not to cough into the microphones. <laughs> Before we start, though, given the fact that we just have so many folks who are out this morning sick and there's been so much sickness running through our whole church family this week, I just think we should take a moment and just pray for the Lord to bring physical healing upon all of us. And at least for those of you that haven't caught it yet, that he will protect you and keep you from catching it, right? So let's do that. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you offer your gift of healing to us. First, you offer us the gift of spiritual healing through salvation. Then you offer us the gift of emotional healing through being reconciled with you and enjoying fellowship with you. Then you offer us physical healing, Lord, in the times of sickness. And we pray that on this morning when so many of us have been physically sick and there are so many that are even not here this morning due to it, we ask, Lord, that you would bring that physical healing upon our church body, upon our physical bodies. And for those who have yet to receive uh, any kind of sickness, Father, we ask and pray that you would just protect them physically and keep them from catching this and keeping them from fulfilling the mission and purpose that you've called them to as well as you've called us to that are sick so that we would be healed and restored to that role. Father, thank you that in your goodness, thank you that in your mercy, you desire to bring and give good things to your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 1. Verses 14 through 18, starting in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, I just ask you this, this uh, hour to open up our hearts and our minds to see your word and to understand the truth in it and to understand where we are, each of us in this moment and each of us as a church body to be ready to respond to what it is you're wanting us to do, what it is you're drawing us into in our walk with you. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would now be at work just pouring out upon all of us. And I pray that especially that it would be upon me as my words that come from my mouth would be the ones that you would have me speak so that each person receives what they need to hear from you this morning for their good and your glory, and that I would hear what I need to hear so it would be for my good and for your glory. We thank you for doing this because we trust you, Father, in Jesus' name. So as we look at 
The word become flesh. Here's what John says. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does he mean by this phrase, the word became flesh? He's saying that God took on human flesh and came to dwell with humanity. What does he mean by this thing about taking on flesh? Does he mean that in the process of becoming human, that Jesus gives up his divine nature? Does he mean that somehow he is both God and man? What is John trying to tell us in what he says here about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? The first thing we have to recognize is that not only the Apostle John later in his own gospel, but also the Apostle Paul reaffirms in both Philippians and Colossians that Jesus does not give up his divinity to take on human flesh, but that instead he actually maintains all of that while putting on a human body. And even that by itself is hard to comprehend. It just doesn't quite make sense. How does this work, right? I mean, let's take a look at what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Who, being Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then in Colossians, just a couple of pages over, Colossians 1.19, Paul says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And right there in Colossians 1.19, it answers one of the next questions that is raised. This whole idea of why does God need to come in human flesh? But before I get to that, I want to deal with this subject of dwelt among us in verse 14. What does that mean that God came and dwelt among us? Well, Part of the challenge, again, is us trying to comprehend the ancient worldview and understand it in a modern language as well. And the word that John uses for dwelt is often used for the same thing in the Old Testament, especially in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for for tabernacle, or when God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, in the wilderness wandering, and in the temple. And so John's directly referencing to that experience. And just to grasp what it means for God to dwell with his people, look at the end of Exodus. Just quickly turn there. The last paragraph of Exodus chapter 40. This is after Moses and all the people of Israel have built the entire tabernacle system. They've constructed all the robes and all the ephods and all the different pieces And they've put them all together and they're now ready to start actually using the tabernacle and for the priests to start actually exercising their priestly duties. And this is how it's described to us of what happened. I'll start in verse 33 of chapter 40. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And if we were to go to Second Samuel and read of Solomon erecting the temple and the moment he dedicates the temple, we would see a very similar event occur with the glory of the Lord coming and filling the entire temple erected in Jerusalem so that the priest, Solomon, everyone who was trying to do their duties in the temple itself had to exit and get out just like Moses couldn't enter into the tabernacle. These critical moments of the Lord just filling the space and is displaying his glory. And John is directly referencing all of that when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. This is just unbelievable. I mean, a God so big that he took up like a warehouse when he descended with his glory on the tabernacle in the temple, and he's going to be contained in a human body? That just doesn't make sense. But that's what happened. Because he's God. He can somehow manifest himself in the flesh just like this and still be fully God. He doesn't have to give up who he is to do this. And then as we read in Colossians 1.19, you know, why? Why would God, why would he put himself in icky flesh? I mean, to be the fullness of God, to enjoy all the fullness that it is to exist as God in heaven, and then to reside in these things that we know as mortal bodies, this makes no sense. Why would he even do such a thing? And Paul tells us in Colossians, it's for the purpose of reconciliation and redemption. But it's for the purpose of reconciliation and redemption as one who knows our sorrows, who understands them because he experienced them in the flesh the same way that we do. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look at Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to be in these things we call physical bodies and face the challenges of temptation and sorrow and grief and yet still perfectly obey the Father. 
I have no idea what that's like. I literally have no idea what it's like living in a body like this, facing our mortal failures and our moral failures and not disobey the Father. But Jesus does. And he does it so that he can be the perfect sacrifice for us. And then there's this very odd phrase that John uses. We have seen his glory as the only son from the father. In the King James, it says the only begotten son. And this word only, the way that it's used by John in the original language, it just emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus is the only one. In fact, in the writers of in Moses, when he wrote Genesis, used this same idea of uniqueness and oneness to separate how it, Isaac was different from Ishmael. How Isaac was the only son of Abraham, not just through Sarah, but also the only son with the promise. And in the same way, Jesus is so unique and different from everyone else that he only is the son of promise, the promise of hope for us. He's just completely unique. I mean, of course, being God in the human flesh makes you very unique, right? But on top of that, he's even more unique than just being God. He's, he's a God who's willing to redeem and receive and reconcile his own people to him through the coming and suffering here on this earth in his own physical body so that he could save us and reconcile us to him. That's an amazing love. I don't know about you, but as I've read about the Greek and Roman mythologies, they really don't have much love for anybody but themselves. Right? And all the ancient Mesopotamian gods, they really loved themselves and just did not care about anybody. And so this kind of love that John's describing, even in the what we call the first century, is still mind-boggling. There's no such John. You Jews have lost your brains. There is just no such thing in our world as a God who loves humans like this. It just doesn't happen. Don't you know that? And John's response is, I know that's what all your false gods tell you. But the one true and living God who is, was, and is to be, loves his people with a steadfast love, the kind of steadfast love that gives himself to redeem them. And it wasn't just for the Jews who believed in him. It was for all who believed in him. John himself even said it. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He actually gave himself to those he tabernacled with. 
I thought about this this morning. How do I, how do I illustrate this idea of God tabernacling with his people in a way that really captures the image? And the best I could come up with, it's like when you sit down to play with a child and you enter into their world, whether it's the little table they have that they sit around, if they're doing a little tea party, or whatever the activity is that the child is doing, and we enter into their place physically, mentally, and emotionally, and play with them as one of them. That's what it's like for Jesus to come and tabernacle with us. And when you read all the narratives of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them say the same thing. They all show Jesus genuinely interacting with his people, whomever they were, whether it was the disciples, whether it was the general people of of the land, or even the Gentiles from outside of Israel. He spoke to them where they were. He went into the places they were. He went into the world they lived in and spoke to them that way. I mean, just look at how differently he speaks to the woman at the well than he does to the crowd on the Galilean hillside when he feeds the 5,000. He actually lived with them. It's one of the reasons why Christian missions has always been a dwelling type missionary philosophy. If you wish to reach these unreached people groups, you must live with them. You must enter their world where they are and speak hope to them in their world, in their life, living with them just like Jesus did. And that's also true for us. Whether we're talking about trying to go to Mozambique, to Mosul, or just down the street. We have to enter into their world where they are to be able to give them the hope. Now, I know that's a, I know that's a much bigger subject. And I'm not trying to get into all of that issue of how do you live in their world but not be of it. We just recognize that if we're going to share the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ with those around us, we have to be willing to enter their world to do it. But then, if all of this so far in verse 14 wasn't so amazing, so completely stunning and shocking and overwhelming, we still have the last phrase of verse 14. That the word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And then verses 16 and 17, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He just didn't come here to save us, right? I mean, he could have just come here and done the job, right? Like most of us, we would just be very task-oriented. Let's get there, let's get the job done, and let's get back to heaven. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't just come here and do the job. He came here to give us his grace And his truth. We 
have the chance to receive the grace and the truth that he is giving us. God taking on human flesh was the ultimate expression of the Old Testament steadfast love of the Lord. Because he came in that same steadfast love to give us grace and truth. John strains at the bolts in the first chapter to talk about the darkness that existed over the land and over the world when Jesus first came and how he was a light piercing the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. And I emphasize and explained a lot of that in the previous week about how the true light just comes and the darkness can't overcome it. And it was just a really dark moment in life for the people of that day. Not just in Jerusalem, but all over the world. And here the light penetrates into this darkness that was existing. A, not so much a physical darkness as the spiritual darkness that overwhelmed them. And by spiritual darkness, I'm specifically referring to the hopelessness that so many of them felt in that day. The religious order had been corrupted to where they, it was hard to tell the difference between a genuine, faithful, obedient of Yahweh and some guy just capitulating and pacifying the Romans. They were an occupied people, occupied by the Romans who did what they wished. And if you fought back against them, they met you with crushing, literally crushing military might and force. It's the epitome of their moment in their lives in that day were the epitome of not being able to do anything for yourself to change your world. And it was in that moment of hopelessness that Jesus came to give grace and truth. To show his steadfast love. Well then, okay, but that just raises the question, what does it mean for God to give grace? What is grace? What is God's grace? How is it different from my grace? Well, to begin with, the entire meaning of grace is almost impossible to be divorced from the meaning that God gives it. In fact, everything that we do to try to define grace, even if it's not religiously connected to the scriptures, ends up being tied back to the way God defines grace. God defines his grace, and what does it mean for God to give grace? To give that unmerited favor, to have done nothing to deserve the kindness and his steadfast love. But yet he gives it anyway. And we all understand this. Most of us understand this. It's almost impossible to be a parent and not understand this idea of grace. To just love this child that has been given to us, knowing that they've done nothing to deserve it except exist. We all have felt that, or most of us at least have felt it. And then they start crying, pitching fits, refusing to eat their carrots. You know, all that stuff that suddenly makes them less graceable. 
And for those of us who've experienced the adult children or even grandchildren, then comes this reality of, oh Lord, please help them because there ain't a thing I can do. And he does. To understand the way God loves us through the way we love our children. And to see the way he protects them even when we are incapable of doing it ourselves. That in itself is grace. God's grace to us is even found in the moments when we can't protect our children anymore from themselves. And he does. That's what it means for God to give grace. Well, this is just a stunning, shocking, almost scandalous kind of grace that he gives. Why on earth would he do that? I don't want to do that. Why would he do that? Why would he show love like this? Because it is who he is. It is just his nature to love like this. It's evidence, the fact that it's his nature to love like this is just the evidence that he is so much beyond us because we are incapable. I don't mean, I'm incapable, so I'm going to assume the rest of you are incapable of loving like this. It's just his nature. It's just who he is. And when we start to grasp that, we begin to understand why it's so important that we're conformed into the image of Christ. So that we can become someone who loves the same way he does. That's why he does it. And he gives us what he wants us to receive. Right? It's, here's this paradoxical thing that I don't quite grasp. We've all experienced, everybody in this room has experienced it. I know you have. I want something. I want it bad, I get it, but then I don't want it. Or I'm afraid to take it, probably more truthfully. Or somehow I feel like I don't deserve it. I mean, I've wanted it for so bad for so long, and then when I finally get it, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want that. No, I don't deserve it. Why do we do that? Why, why do we want something so bad, and then when we get it, refuse to receive it? I don't know why you do it. I'm not even completely sure I know why I do it. But the times that I am cognizantly aware of it, at least to be able to parse out and peel away the layers of my desires, the only thing that comes down to is this reality that I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid that it's not as good as I think it's going to be. Or... Now that I'm going to get it, I'm going to lose it. And that'll be worse than ever having it. it. It's just fear. And that's how we are with his grace too. I'm afraid to take his grace. I mean, what if I lose it? I'm not really good enough for this. I know every one of you felt these same things. 
but it doesn't change the reality that he gives us what he wants us to receive. Just will we receive it? We can receive it. We can receive it. And we should. We can rightfully and truthfully say we don't deserve it. But we can still receive it because he gives it. Does the snotty-nosed two-year-old who has been pitching a fit because he has to eat carrots when he wants raisins deserve our love and grace? Do we give it to him or her anyway? Do we really want them to receive it even when we're giving it to them and they don't deserve it? So also, he wants us to receive it even though we don't deserve it. But it's even richer and better than all this. I mean, this isn't just sort of an intellectual ascension to theological truth or aspects of God's nature that we keep at arm's length. When I say receive it, I actually mean not just, you know, not just believe it in my head, but actually enjoy it in my heart and in my soul so that my whole being Heart, mind, soul, and body. All of me receives it, enjoys it, and expresses that joy and thankfulness back to him. I'm not one for cute phrases, but I've got one anyway for today. And this is the most important thing I want you to remember today. If you can just grasp this and hold on to it, no matter what's happening to you or around you. Where the word abides, grace and truth resides. Say it with me. Where the word abides, grace and truth reside. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? It just means that. Grace and truth resides in us. When the word made flesh abides in us. As spirit-filled believers, God just doesn't tabernacle in another being that hangs out with us. He tabernacles within us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. Never believe something because I said it. Believe it because I've shown you from scripture that it's true. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. One of the reasons, right, we have historical man-centered reasons for why the Jewish temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Right? The Jews led a revolt. The Romans had had enough. And they sent Tacticus to go in and destroy. White, level the place. That was It was a simple command from Caesar. Level the temple. That was all. And he went and he did. He leveled the temple. Gone. Flat. Flat as a flitter. Gone. 
But was God's purpose for removing the temple? Is because it's no longer needed. The Jewish temple that Solomon built to house God, for the people to be able to go to God, you just don't need it anymore. Because the temple now resides within us. God's spirit in us brings the temple inside of us. And we now dwell with God in this, in these mortal bodies. That's just insane. That's crazy. But that's what he does. And it's going to get even better. Because at the end of time, what does Revelation tell us? At the end of time, we will dwell with him and he will dwell with us even richer, fuller, more deeper ways than we can understand and experience here on this earth. As good as it is to have him dwelling within us, you ain't seen nothing yet, brothers and sisters. You ain't seen nothing yet. And because he dwells with us, his truth and grace dwells in us too. If we will receive it. And then also, in a different kind of way, we have to acknowledge that Scripture, God's Word, is itself a form of God's grace and truth because of Jesus Christ. By receiving Scripture and memorizing it, learning it, understanding what it says, we're receiving God's grace and truth even in that way. But just as Scripture is incomplete and meaningless without Jesus, learning Scripture and memorizing it without Jesus is still meaningless and useless. Paul himself said that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, we are to be pitied among all men on the earth because we're believing in a lie if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But praise God, he did rise from the dead. We proclaim it, we stand upon it as a factual truth, and we live by it as the hope of our salvation. And so also, that same Jesus, when we receive him and then receive his words, those words have real meaning and difference within our heart and our minds and our souls. Now, you know what's coming next. Well, those of you who've been with me for a while, you know what's coming next. Well, thanks for this wonderful exposition of John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and this beautiful explanation of the grace of God. But so what? So what? The first so what is, well, have you received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Just that simple. Have you believed that Jesus is God's only son and he was crucified on the cross, died and buried for our sins, your sins, and that he rose from the dead to give us salvation? If not, today is the day of your salvation. If you will trust in Jesus' redeeming work on the cross to save you, just like he saved me and so many of us in this room. Receive the grace of God through faith in Christ. For those of us who have received God's grace through faith in Christ, have you fully received his grace? 
do you still have that one mistake that you can't let go of? You say something like, well, Jesus saved me and I am forgiven, except for that one time I fill in the blank. God's grace and forgiveness are extended to all our sins. Why would we withhold receiving grace in all the areas? Why? Why would I say I'm okay except for this one thing? Why would I hold back there? Jesus paid it all through his blood. The high king of heaven gave himself for us. And God the Father, the supreme God of all heaven and earth, has now driven my sins, our sins, away from us and him as far as the east is from the west. The blood of Jesus is that good, except for me. This is harsh, all right? But understand that the harshness you're about to hear and feel, I've already walked through it myself. The blood of Jesus is good enough for everything except me. That's what we're saying when we refuse to believe that he has forgiven us and receive his grace and to be freed from those bondage chains that hold us down because of this one thing. The blood of Jesus just isn't good enough for me. That's what we say. Why would we say such a thing? I mean, if I actually articulate that, I'm appalled. I'm horrified that I would even think such a thing. But yet that's exactly what I thought and believed. Why? Because I didn't trust him. Well, if he really knew this, like he didn't already, but if he really knew this, he wouldn't love me. I mean, how could he? Nobody could love me if they knew this. He already knew it and he chose to love us anyway. That's why we can receive it. That's why we don't have to hold back in fear from this one thing, this one place, because he already knew it. It's nothing new to him. He extends his love and grace to us fully knowing everything about it even better than we understand it. Today is the day to fully receive his grace and live in the truth that Jesus paid it all, every last ounce of it. There's this issue of forgiveness. God has created and orchestrated our beings and his world in such a way that we cannot have freedom without forgiving. Whether we're forgiving another person for something they've done against us, or whether we're forgiving ourselves. I recognize that's a delicate and controversial subject about forgiving ourselves. But from a practical standpoint, that's what we end up doing. We let it go. And we fully receive his grace. Today's the day to receive it. Every ounce of it. 
And now that you have received the grace of God, live free in the truth of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Oh, it's just so amazing, so stunning the way you love us. Just how? I don't understand it. I've given up trying to understand it. I just want to enjoy it. I want to fully receive your grace, Father. Every area, every corner, holding nothing back within my heart, mind, and soul, but letting you have all of it and enjoy all of your grace and all of your truth in all of me. And I pray that this is the same desire for every person here this morning, that each of us would fully receive your grace and then live free in the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' holy name, amen.